Welcome back to the Power of Sports Nutrition podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today, it's my great pleasure to introduce to you Melissa Lacroix. Melissa is the lead physiologist for the Canadian Institute of Sport Ontario. She's also the lead physiologist and strength and conditioning coach with Canadian Wheelchair Rugby and has been with that team for a long time now, I think. So welcome to the podcast, Melissa. Thanks, Liz. It's great to be here. I think you, you covered my experience pretty well there. I've definitely been with the team for quite some time. I started with them just after the 2012 Paralympics. Yeah. So, wow, that's 10 years now. <laughs> yeah. Time flies. Yeah. <laughs> it certainly does. Melissa, can you tell us a bit about your background and your role at CSI Ontario and how you got involved with wheelchair rugby? Yeah. So, I, a bit of my background, I mean, right now you, you mentioned I'm the, the lead physiologist at the Canadian Sport Institute Ontario. And I, with that, my main sport that I do work with is wheelchair rugby. But at the Institute, you know, we work with uh, many different different teams, both Olympic, Paralympic and, and development athletes. And mm-hmm. so I work across a, quite a few different sports and some in the on the parasport side. And, and like I said, some on the able-bodied side. So yep. I, my career background started actually back in at the Canadian Sport Institute Pacific. So we in Canada have uh, an institute across a lot of the different provinces. So the main provinces in Canada has an institute. And um, so I started at the one out west in Vancouver at the Mm -hmm. the Canadian Sport Institute Pacific there and uh, started right out of school coming out of college. I, my background actually was originally in athletic therapy. So uh, Mm. as an athlete, I actually had, you know, I I played a high level of, of hockey and in college and had quite a few injuries. So I originally actually went into athletic training as my, um, as my undergrad. I really love that whole ath- um, aspect of returning athletes to training, had gone through it myself, and so really wanted to learn more about the, the injury mm-hmm. side of things. But then, you know, I, I, I shifted my focus. I, I loved learning about the, the training side of things as well. So the systems of why, why things were working in a certain way, how they were working and why we, why some training programs worked and others didn't. So mm. I started to dig into that a little bit more and continued with my master's in physiology. Yeah. And so that's kind of how I, I turned that um, page into the physiology side of things and ended up at the Institute in the lab there working, starting as lab manager and physiologist. And through that experience, I was able to have an opportunity to start working with wheelchair rugby. And as soon as that opportunity came up, that was the first time I had been exposed to, you know, working with para sport and was, mm-hmm. I was excited about the opportunity. And I guess over the years, I've, uh, I've stayed with them ever since that, uh, that first training camp. So it seems to be a common theme with yeah. wheelchair rugby where people <laughs> start there having known nothing about it. And once they're in, they're hooked and hooked for life almost. Yeah, it's uh, it's true. It's funny because you do see a lot of the same staff over the years across all the the different countries who are still around and still helping out. So mm-hmm. even our staff, there, the the crew that started when I did ten years ago, there's quite a few of the same same people around. And um, I think part of that is it's it's building a family, a part of the team. That's kind of one of our our values within the program. Is it is a family environment mm-hmm. where you know everyone takes care of each other and and pushes each other and and helps each other out and it's a it's a great sport if anyone uh, if you have I know you've seen it and have yep. uh, been part of it a little <laughs> bit so it's a it's a high contact sport and so for me coming from the uh, hockey background I, mm-hmm. I absolutely loved it right away with that the team aspect and the the high contact aspect of the sport as well and just how much strategy is involved 
in the game. It's pretty intricate in terms of the the strategy that that plays out um, mm. throughout the game. So it's a pretty great sport to be part of. Yep. And so the other sports that you work with at CSI Ontario is wheelchair rugby the only para sport, or do you have some other para sports that you work with? Yeah, a few of the other para sports that I've worked with and currently still do a bit of work on the side with is uh, para canoe kayak would be uh, one of the bigger ones. And then para-alpine ski from a developing standpoint, I've, I've worked with them quite a bit right now as well. So mm-hmm. those are the two other, the main ones okay. that I support. So can you, can you give us a bit of an idea of what you do on a day-to-day basis with, we'll, we'll focus pre- predominantly on wheelchair rugby then. Can you give us an idea <clears> of what <throat> you would do on a day-to-day basis with them? Yeah, so there's, on a day-to-day basis with rugby, it's, it depends if we're in a centralized environment, so at a training camp or at a competition versus, mm-hmm. you know, what we call decentralized environment at home. So in Canada, the athletes actually live all over Canada. So there's we have different hubs of athletes who train together on a day-to-day basis mm-hmm. across the different uh, centers and provinces. And so I have a group of athletes that I work with hands-on in Toronto with, so that's where, where I'm located and I have about six of the athletes on the team here where, you know, day-to-day with them is spending time in the gym with them with their SNC programming. So, mm-hmm. you know, programming for them and helping them with their, their SNC day-to-day. And then outside of that, that's more the SNC side of things. And then the, the physiology piece is in the decentralized environment. A big part of that is as a physiologist, you're working to you know, optimize athlete performance and, and health and wellness. So it's, in the decentralized environment, it's a lot of working with the other ISTs, so the other integrated support staff and the coaches to help with the planning. So planning mm-hmm. the yearly training plans and and making sure that everyone's you know got the we're we're working through the what strengths and what gaps each athlete and as a team as a whole what where we want to focus our energy and time. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of in that decentralized piece is just working together and collaborating with all of the other staff and all the athletes to, to make sure everything's in terms of their training and preparation is, is good going into events. And then, you know, we get to training camp or a competition. Again, the, my role there is, is focused around the performance and physical preparation mm-hmm. to helping the athletes. You know, it could be from um, helping them prior to going to the camp with travel strategies. So, if we're going somewhere that has multiple time zones, it's helping them come up with a plan and strategy around those time zone differences mm-hmm. and hydration strategies and those things for those long travel days. And um, at a training camp or competition, it's anything from you know recovery, helping the athletes with their their recovery from one session to another, and, and or a game could be anything from helping the coaches plan out their their sessions to make sure we mm-hmm. have the right periodized approach to each practice and or tapering into an event. And in a competition setting, it's we also think about different things, environmental stressors that, that may come into play with, whether it be um, we're somewhere a little bit wa- more warm or hot and mm-hmm. humid, then it could be looking at, you know, cooling strategies, healthy athletes with any, if any of the athletes have any issues with their thermoregulation system. So it's cooling strategies, hydration, things like that for uh, mm. in competition. Yeah, so there's lots of different components <laughs> to it. Yeah. There um, are, yeah. How- it's, it's tough to tough to say everything that goes into to being a physiologist in both yeah. in a centralized and decentralized environment, but there's a, a yeah. lot of different roles. Yeah. Yeah. 
I, I used to get people asking me, what's a typical day look like? And I said, well, part of the beauty of my job is there is no typical day. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about how you see the physiological demands of wheelchair rugby being? Like if you were to describe wheelchair rugby from a physiological perspective, how would you describe it? Yeah, it's a very stop and go type of sport. So mm -hmm. it's to explain it just in, in general terms, I mean, the, the game itself is four quarters, eight minutes in length. So it's not overly long. I mean, an hour to an hour and a half is the length of a game, mm -hmm. but it's a, a lot of sprinting and stopping and starting. So more on that, you know, the, the energy system wise, we're looking at the athletes do need a good aerobic base to get through that hour, full hour, an hour and a half, especially for someone who might be playing a full game. But Mm -hmm. uh, there's also a lot of that, you know, that, that quick anaerobic that they need to be on for potentially two, four minutes at a time where they're nonstop, mm -hmm. um, no, not stop and go. So there's a bit of a mix of all systems, but that acceleration, I would say the one of the biggest keys and indicators to the game is the, if you see it, it's, it's a lot of that two to five meters, maybe 10 meters where the game is played. So it's a mm -hmm. lot of that, you know, stop and start ex quick accelerations and and holding opponents so that part of the game and physiological aspect to, to training is really important yeah and, and 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 so you know training those systems is all of those systems is completely different you know do you do most of the training on court for that stop start change of direction kind of component or is that really where their strength and conditioning comes yeah, there's a little bit of both. I think there's a component where we, we do add in a lot of different types of agility work in their chairs mm -hmm. yep. to address that, those those areas of the, the stop and starts and, and different things because there's only so much you can do in a gym that does need to be sport-specific in the in their chairs. So there's definitely some agility components to the training program. And then in the gym, there's things that we can do as well from a strength and conditioning side of things so that they're prepared to go into those on court and be able to perform and not get injured either. Cause that's a lot of stress from a neuromuscular standpoint as mm -hmm. well. Um, so that's where the strength and conditioning really comes in from an injury prevention, but also optimizing performance in, in those aspects. Yeah. Okay. And so from a nutritional perspective, like I guess in, if you think about the way the muscle gets fueled, it gets fueled a little bit differently in an aerobic environment versus in, you know, the, for the, the needs of the muscle in an anaerobic environment. So obviously there's a mix of nutritional needs. You can't just classify, you know, wheelchair rugby into something that A, needs a lot of carbohydrates, for example, or B, doesn't need a lot of carbohydrate. It, it, it depends on... You know, I think there's a flux that happens throughout the whole game. Do you think mm -hmm. that there are challenges that the wheelchair rugby players face in terms of really understanding that fueling demand and, and being able to meet that demand appropriately? Yeah, I think so. I do think it's one of the biggest things right now that we're we're actually working through and trying to to work on and focus on is one, I think it's hard because there's not actually a lot of research out there on the demands of the game of wheelchair rugby, especially mm -hmm. at an international level. I think there's some papers and research out there a little bit on you know, different at different training camps or within their own teams of, of monitoring what those loads are, whether that be from, you know, that internal and external training load of what it is and what it takes. 
and then separating that out of what the classification is. So depending on the athlete's impairment, what level of injury they are and what position they might play on the court, the demands might be different. And we don't necessarily mm. know that to the fullest degree yet. Um, yeah. We're doing, yeah, we're starting to, to look at different things like that of, of measuring heart rate on court during games and um, using IMUs to start to collect, you know, different measurements of uh, kilometers and stops and starts in a, in a game as well. So we're starting to collect that information and, and start to try and understand the differences between the different classifications of what those, mm. what, what it is to characterize the game for them and positions. So we're, I think that's part of it is just that gap there and the, the knowledge of the, the sports of the internal and external demands of the game. Mm-hmm. And then from there, you're right. It's how to apply the, the nutrition aspect to that and, and the education to the athletes of how much or what they need to be, to be fueling. And part of that that we're using right now is just showing them how, you know, with just even heart rate alone of how high they might be in a game or different aspects that they need to, to recover in between games as well. So mm-hmm. It's certainly something that uh, we're we're working towards in, in educating the athletes, and I think it's it's something that as the athletes play a little bit more and start to understand the themselves, it becomes something that they they have at least focused on or understood a bit more for themselves because it is a very individual approach. Yeah, because you've got a, a range of impairment types, and and obviously, as you say or alluded to, a range of roles on the court. You've got some players that are, are very, very mobile and, and very fast and so their role is a little bit different to a player that is, you know, just functionally not able to move as quickly and so you've got quite a big a bit of variation in terms of those physiological demands potentially but as you say, it's kind of mostly undocumented, isn't it? It is, yep. Mm. And working with other para-sports, if we think about, alpine ski and canoe kayak like they're you know you've got three very different sports <laughs> when it <laughs> comes to the parasite of things what is what are some of the challenges you see with the different athletes that you work with on the parasite that are different to the challenges that you see on the able-bodied side yeah i think part of it i i just mentioned on the just the evidence informed practice piece of Mm-hmm. not having as much information available to you know turn to the research and and when you have different situations come up whether it be like you said the the fueling piece of okay we need to you do, you want to see how much you want to be able to fuel a certain athlete for a certain sport or whatnot and there's not necessarily the testing availability or the equipment available or the the information really there to help support depending on the athlete's impairment you know every athlete is different in terms of what their disability or impairment is so even if someone has the same disability they may not have the same function level of function so mm. that's where we find every athlete is is very unique and every disability is unique and and having that information available is not always there so having to to rely on other people to collaborate with and and ask questions and see if they've seen certain things or be able to, to help you out in that sense, mm-hmm. um, to lean on other people and practitioners, maybe the athlete themselves really bringing them into the conversation. I think yep. that's a, a big part of it as well. Mm. And what about any 
real nutrition challenges if you focus on wheelchair rugby for example what are some of the biggest nutrition challenges you've seen with the athletes over those 10 years that you've been working with yeah I you know I think one of the things that comes up often and is um, a little bit more of a challenge with this group than than even on the able-bodied side would be the GI, the amount of issues that come up around GI issues mm-hmm. and just the, the motility issues as well. So really around, I mean, a lot of the athletes we work with have a, we, I don't know if this is fortunate or not, but we here in Canada, a lot of the athletes have been around for a long time as well on the team. And we have some new athletes coming in the system and, and have over the years, but we also have a lot of veterans on mm-hmm. the team. And so they've gotten to know their their bodies quite well and, and are pretty good with their their fueling strategies over the years, but there's still those challenges around GI and bladder bowel, whether we're traveling or, mm-hmm. you know, we're in a really high training phase and, and things like that is really still having to manage those um, yeah. those issues that come up and, and really trying to help them navigate those um, as they happen. And are those GI issues more around a lack of appetite for food at certain times like for example if it's high intensity work they've been doing that they just don't have the appetite to eat or that they're getting gut pain or is it more that there's uh, changes in their I guess their consistency of their of stools so that changes the way they have to manage their bowels or like what are some of the key things that you have seen that that become more problematic or that are problematic in general but become more problematic in that in that camp or competition Mm -hmm. environment yeah so a little bit of I mean a a mix of some of those things in terms of issues related to bowel and 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 stool inconsistencies however it's some of that comes with travel some of it comes with Mm. new food and that's one of the things I think we've come to realize over the years was with going different places and traveling different areas is some of the athletes have a little bit more sensitivity to what they, um, what they can eat or won't, what will disturb their, their GI and bowels and what won't. And sometimes not mm-hmm. having full control over the meals at different places. And I mean, being in a village um, mm-hmm. in itself, like at the Paralympics or a multi-sport game, it's, you kind of have to pick and choose where and what you're going to eat. And it's really just figuring those things out on the road and coming up with some things where we might travel with for ourselves as a team um, in our bags to make sure that we at least have options for the athletes that they're going to feel comfortable with eating prior to games. And mm-hmm. just having that, I mean, in their, in their chairs as well, they have a lot of the athletes use, use strapping. So the strapping is right in and around their stomach area. And mm-hmm. so that causes a lot of pressure to their stomach. So again, just depending on how much or what they eat beforehand could disturb that as well. So just mm. for for them, really, it's about figuring out what they can and can't eat and what will disturb them or not. And that's that takes time, I think, for, yeah. for them to figure it out. But for us also to to be supportive in that process. Yeah. And I guess, have you had to have a look at perhaps the volume of work that's undertaken in a training camp for example because with the delayed gastric emptying that we know can occur with higher level spinal cord injuries and and in wheelchair rugby we most of the players will have high level spinal cord injuries it means that the you know in my viewpoint or my thought process it means that the 
there's a likely risk that they can't fully recover their fuel stores sufficiently just simply because they can't fit enough food in over a set period of time. You know, if you look at recommendations for carbohydrate intake post-exercise and between training sessions, if they're doing multiple sessions in a day, it's challenging to get even if you've got normal bowel function, let alone if you've got you know, impaired motility in the gut. Do you have you had to kind of talk to coaches about modifying or considering the volume of training in a camp because of that? Yeah, we have over the years looked at just the volume of what we're doing and periodizing it a little bit better throughout a camp setting. And I mean, it's tough because every athlete is on a bit of a different schedule in terms of their own own bowel routines and whatnot. Mm. So that's tough to obviously schedule around everybody for the periodizing of a, of a training camp over a week or a couple of weeks. But what we have started to do is try to do a little bit more monitoring for the athletes individually. So that could be, you know, asking them how they're feeling every day after, after the training, you know, looking at how much distance and, and those sort of things that they did from an external standpoint and how they're responding. So we will do different sprint type testing every day just to see where, where they're sitting from that, mm-hmm. from their physical side of things. And then, you know, once we've we've been able to see that and be able to adapt through it, we've been a little bit better, I would say, at adapting throughout camps now of where mm. we can see athletes or if there's trends across uh, a couple different athletes and then we, we can adjust practices and training from there. And that's where I think we've done a, definitely a better job over the years with collecting more information and data and being able to, to inform our own training through that mm. process. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think the collection of information is, you know, in your viewpoint, have you seen that para-athletes have been at the same level of that data collection as a lot of able-bodied athletes at a similar level, you know, Olympic, Paralympic? Or do you think that there's a bit of been a bit of a lag in, in taking up that type of monitoring process in the para-side? Yeah, it's definitely taken some time over the years, even with Latrobe well, to get to where we are now mm. in that process. And I think every sport and parasport is different in where they're at with it because of, you know, some programs and, and teams will have athletes come in to, depending on when they're, if it's a, an acquired injury um, or congenital and where the athlete is in their training age or history mm-hmm. is you could have athletes be put into a high performance situation very quickly and so it's it's interesting how I would say we're in parasport a little bit uh, lagging from that collection and and data collection side of things one because we we might not have the right equipment or don't have the right information yet on how to to do that so even Mm -hmm. example like IMUs and collecting external internal loads like that stuff has been out there for a long time in, in different sports like able-bodied rugby and soccer, outdoor sports, but not necessarily for wheelchair sports. So that's where some of those things are, I think, come from, yes, the research side of things we need to continue to push that forward. But then on the other hand, I also think it's just how quickly some programs bring in athletes to that high performance level. And it's hard to throw everything at that yeah. athlete and, and that team all at once. So it, it yeah. does take... A bit of time to really get that I wouldn't say buy-in but just that that um, culture of collection and monitoring and sports science and medicine 
the way we yeah. do at the, the Olympic level. And it doesn't need to be too technical. It's just introducing a form of monitoring that allows the athlete to understand how their body's responding to the training and to the recovery processes and, and things like that and gives you some, some actual feedback on that individual's yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I think it's, it is important to, like you said, have that, that progression and not, um, you can just add one or two things here and there just to, I think that's one of the things I've learned actually with, with this as well, with working with the, the team that, uh, with rugby at least is having the information and being able to use that information to help the athletes understand and educate them and then mm. get them to understand, like, for example, cooling strategies so some of the athletes on our team most of them are, are quadriplegic so have some impairment to their thermoregulation system so you know training in the heat competing in the heat don't have the same ability to sweat and thermoregulate mm-hmm. and so I remember when I first started one of the things the athletes didn't want to be doing cooling strategies they didn't feel hot they didn't think they were getting hot or overheated and so one of the things we did right away was to you know start collecting data on their internal core temperatures through using the the telemetric pills that the mm-hmm. athletes swallow and yep yeah so we were using those to 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 show them that in a game setting their their core temperatures were reaching you know above 38 39 mm. degrees and uh, they celsius says and they they didn't realize that they were getting that hot and didn't know or feel or think they were so just being able to show them and monitor that and then yep. give them that information and feedback they then realized understood why we yep. wanted them to do some of the different cooling strategies that we were using yeah 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 if there was one one thing that an athlete a para athlete could monitor that would give them some really useful information that's easy to do what do you think that one thing would be? Oh, that's a great question. Like I, I know some some athletes <laughs> yeah. like it, it's it's not uncommon for say you know athletes to to assess their resting heart rate for example, which mm-hmm. can over tracked over time can give some interesting information and maybe a little bit of predictive information when they're needing either a rest or they may be getting coming down with some sort of illness you know so is it as simple as you know one of the key things they could do would be some sort of self-assessment in in the morning that is maybe a resting heart rate and you know some other measure or do you think that it really does depend on the individual I think it could depend on on maybe the sport Mm -hmm. and the individual but one of the things I mean you just mentioned morning to me, one of the biggest things from a physiological standpoint then in recovery and optimizing performance would be sleep. So just mm. even monitoring how an athlete's responding to their sleep. And so whether it be you know, quality of sleep and how many hours of sleep they're getting and, and over time, and I know quite a few of our athletes over, over the years have had different you know, up and downs in terms of their, their sleep cycles and just being able to try and help educate them on how important that, how important sleep is to recovery and performance. Um, would yep. be a, a big one for me. Yeah. Yep. Awesome. I think that's a, you know, that because my experience is that there's some athletes who don't monitor anything. And so they've got no concept of how their body's responding to training. We, you know, they don't even kind of monitor necessarily levels of soreness in, in muscle mm-hmm. soreness or anything like that. So, you know, I think it's useful to kind of go, well, what's one thing that you could 
you can measure or assess, self-assess that can give you, if you track it over time, some really useful information. So, yeah, the sleep one's a really, a really good one. Yeah. Do you have any specific recommendations for athletes in terms of either how to, you know, if they don't have a physiologist, for example, I mean, it's fantastic that you're able to provide mm-hmm. that support to a number of athletes, but there's athletes around the world who don't have access to that. I guess the sleep is one thing. Any any recommendations in terms of how they could either find someone to help them with that or how they can go about understanding their physiological responses to training? Yeah, I think there's a few things that I would you know recommend to whether it be an athlete who doesn't have a physiologist or a developing athlete too would be to one, if they want to see how they're improving or you know, responding to different training is depending on the sport is finding, you know, whether it be a workout that they can do on a regular basis and mm-hmm. every few weeks to even just see how that last phase of training or if they're recovered going into the next phase or whatnot. So could be a simple, I'm trying to think of the sport here, canoe kayak, for example, could be that they have a certain distance or a, a test that they could implement and, mm-hmm. and perform same conditions, try to, try to make things similar as best as possible and uh, do that test and, or we call it a monitoring set and, and see how the athletes feel. So ask them, have the athlete ask themselves how they felt after. Maybe they can monitor different things like their heart rate or pacing or, or whatever it might be, or, or just do it for time and see where they sit. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it, it will depend on what the phase and the goal of the training before that was, but it could give them at least something to, to see and monitor in terms of the physical side of things, how they're adapting to that training or mm. recovery phase. Yeah, I think that's a really great idea in terms of having a benchmark of some sort that you're comparing against that it helps you understand how the different training modalities can help with that perhaps over time. What about any recommendations that you have for coaches? Yeah, I think for from a physiology and a training side of things for coaches, I I always try to recommend, you know, if hopefully they have some understanding on the physiology side and, and programming, but the periodization of training I think is is really important and, and a big part of a well-designed plan for for an athlete and really being able to sit down and plan that out of the over the year and have that yearly training plan and at least give themselves a roadmap to know mm-hmm. where they want to go and you can kind of work backwards from that roadmap of where they want where they want the athletes to peak and then design their programming from there and you can always adapt throughout the year as as you see the athlete and um, as different things change, as we know, um, mm. I think we've seen over the last few years, just with different competitions being canceled and things changing all the time. That's something that I think we've all learned to be very adaptable with our training plans and mm-hmm. and those sort of things. But just being able to have a good idea of how to do that and and knowing when to add in those rest blocks and being okay with you know having really quality training when you have planned for quality training, make sure that that's that, that's the goal and that's what they're sticking to and yeah 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 and not not panicking at the last minute exactly. and changing everything <laughs> just because you think you know you you maybe aren't where you wanted to be I think it's trusting 
trusting the plan once you've put that plan in place that over time you'll you'll get to where you want to be. Exactly. Yeah. And mm. I, I tell it to athletes all the time of the the no secret secret training right before it happens all the time. <laughs> they feel like in that those taper times or those times of recovery where they feel like they need to be doing doing more. Mm. And it's really just that education piece around that too of just it's a, a big part of those are when the adaptations happen. So uh, yeah. Yeah, making yeah. sure they're they're following the plan just as much as the coaches are. Yeah, absolutely. And what about any recommendations that you have for other practitioners, whether they be physiologists or nutritionists or psychologists who are perhaps new to working with parasport or want to actually get into working with parasport? Any recommendations that you have for them? I think the biggest thing I learned, I guess looking back at when I started, is one, like learning the sport that you're working in, especially when it comes to parasport, because a lot of the parasports, it's not sports that we would have, for me as an able-bodied person, grown up playing wheelchair rugby or you know, wheelchair basketball, sled hockey, mm-hmm. whatever it might be. It's not necessarily sports that we grew up playing or I grew up playing. So really learning the sport and understanding it, but then also understanding the athletes. So getting to know the athletes impairment what their level of function is what they can do Mm -hmm. um, and not just necessarily what they can't do but really Mm -hmm. just being aware and educate themselves ask the athletes questions you know don't be afraid to to ask those questions and really understand each athlete because like I said earlier is that every athlete is unique in their disability and their function so really getting to know that I think is a is a big part of it Mm -hmm. and then the next thing I think would be to Make sure any all practitioner, any practitioners, they're collaborating with each other. So, you mm. know, as as a physiologist, I'm not working in a silo on my own. You know, I'm constantly working and communicating and talking, collaborating with, you know, the nutritionists on our team, our medical staff, our, you know, our other strength and conditioning coach or our, our mental performance coach. So I know we have a big team of, of different integrated sports staff, but whether you have one staff member on your team that you can speak to, um, mm-hmm. There hopefully is somebody that you can um, continue to, to bounce ideas off of and, and collaborate with. Yeah. What about collaboration across other nations, for example? I mean, as you mentioned earlier, the research that's available in parasport is, is limited and it's spotty and it, it's actually mostly in spinal cord injuries, not in other impairments. Yeah. Do you find that also simply because of the, the number of people who have that understanding that it's that there's value in reaching out to colleagues in other countries as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think I mean, Lizette, we we worked on a project. Can't remember how long ago it was now, but the uh, don't tell research, everyone. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> trying to think of the date here, but we won't. Uh, it was a few years ago with uh, with you, Kelly, and and Robert Chet, uh, from. From Washington there and we we did the vitamin D study and I think that's I mean an example of being able to just collaborate across nations and to you know better the research and and the sport and work together on that and I I do agree that I think that's something that needs to to happen a bit more and a big I think benefit to that also is you know some of the research it's hard to do because there's not a lot of athletes so if you can start to whether it be research-related pull the athletes together from the different mm-hmm. nations to do cross nation or international and national type of projects. It's, um, it, it would be really helpful on that end, but just building relationships in general, 
international is is absolutely absolutely key. You know, I think I think back even to to the Rio Paralympic Games when I think it was you had uh, you had organized a day to to have everyone everyone there, all the nutritionists. I think I might have been one of the only physiologists there at the time. But <laughs> we got together for a, a lunch and you got everyone together and just it was really neat for me. That was the first time first games I had been to and mm-hmm. had been working with you just prior to that. So uh, being able to meet you there in person and some of the other nutritionists and, and people working with different sports and countries, it, it was just great to see that collaboration and, and people get together. And I'll remember sitting there and having lunch with you guys and everyone was trading different things. Like some people were trading. We had extra chocolate milk or had extra peanut butter <laughs> and people were trading across different countries, the nutritionists. So I thought that was pretty neat. And just to show that that those relationships there are, are important and you never know when the, <laughs> when you can help yep. each other out. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, it's, I think it's, you know, in Parasport in particular, it, it just helps build that knowledge base and everyone's got slightly different experiences, but can you can learn from each other. And I think it's a really collegial sort of, I guess, network. So I think, you know, anyone coming into that from a new perspective, certainly I think it's worthwhile encouraging them to continue that that international cross-collaboration. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Thank you so much for all of your information. I'm aware that you've got a busy schedule, so I won't <laughs> keep you much longer. We just have one last personal question for you, but what's your favourite food? Oh, all right. Um, I will have to go with a family. I mean, my mom is a great cook, so mm-hmm. I have lots of different great foods that I love, but one of the things I guess I would say is my mom's homemade, it's a French dish, a French Canadian mm-hmm. dish. It's called a tortilla, which is a basically a meat pie, essentially. So, ah. but it's a yeah, our family recipe is very good. So, mm. I'd have to go with uh, with that, and it's probably on my mind because we just had it was just the holidays, so yeah. <laughs> we got to have lots of that at home. Awesome, yeah. cool, I love it. Well, thank you so much, Melissa, for your insight, and also just for your extensive work that you're continuing to do in this area. I know it contributes greatly to the athletes. The Canadian team is certainly a force to be reckoned with. And so, (laughs) you know, good luck for the the future and obviously leading into Paris. And as you said, Parapan Ams, which are coming up later this year in Chile. So, yeah. Thank you so much for your time and we might come back to you at another time and and chat with you more about some specific topics. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. It was uh, it was fun. I've heard some of the other participants on your podcast in the past and have really enjoyed listening to others, so I'm happy to be part of it and yeah, I'm sure we'll we'll be in touch. It's great to to chat with you and catch up again. Melissa has provided some great messages about monitoring some simple things. It doesn't have to be complicated with lots of tools, just things that you do in a day-to-day scenario in your training. If you want to look back, we do have an episode that is devoted to sleep and the importance of sleep with para-athletes. That was episode 13 with Peter Maloney. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have any feedback, please leave it on our website or just simply like the podcast. 
I hope you'll join us next time when we talk to Millie Tapper, who is a para-table tennis player from Australia.